All right, so we are looking today at um, what's kind of a big topic, um, an important topic, and which I'm going to try and do some reasonably original connections in terms of what's the end, the purpose of marriage. And I want to dwell first on the question of pleasure. That's the bit, in a sense, that I want to add something to a lot of analysis that isn't in there. Because obviously, in the world we live in, pleasure is what everything is about, and pleasure is what sex is about. But if you flip that in reverse, there are lots of people who, as Catholics, particularly, dare I say, if you're an Irish Catholic, where pleasure is a thing you feel guilty about. So that the world out there has got a problem with pleasure, but sometimes also the world in here has a different problem with pleasure. So what's the right way to be thinking about pleasure? And what does that also, how does that relate to the question of what is the end or ends of sex and marriage? Um, so that's really what we're going to look at today. So let's go straight to my notes, um, page one. So pose there the question, what are we aiming for in sex? So I've said many times I'm a, a virtue ethicist. In virtue analysis, the object of the act is pivotal. You develop a virtue by knowing what you're aiming at and repeating it again and again. Well, what are you aiming at in sex? And I put three possible answers. Um, pleasure, that kind of be the Hollywood answer. Um, union, the romantic answer or children, but I've said we might call the forgotten answer. Um, I say in future lectures, we'll consider future lectures meaning um, Monday, Wednesday, next week. Um, we'll consider the virtue that relates to this in this course, namely chastity. Any virtue is defined by its object, which means if you get the object wrong, if you misidentify it, misspecify it, then you actually don't form chastity, you form something else. So you've got to know what you're aiming at if you're going to form the right thing in you. So if what you form in yourself is just repression of your feelings, well, you can do that again and again and again by repeating your actions, but that isn't chastity. Chastity is something else. So we've got to know what we're aiming at. So this object is what fulfills this particular activity. That's what virtue analysis is focused on. Virtue is the fulfillment of that activity in a stable form. So what is the end of sexual activity? And how does that relate to the end or ends of marriage? And also, sometimes the terminology talks of goods of marriage as well. But first, a couple pages on pleasure. First of all, the problem of pleasure. So first, pleasure is a problem because it can distract us from God. So in itself it shouldn't do that, but because of concupiscence, because of the disorder in our passions, we reach for pleasure in a disordered way. Pleasure has just become too important to us. And St. Thomas notes that the pleasures of sex are actually the greatest of physical pleasures. So that disorder therefore affects us more in that realm than others. But more specifically in the analysis I want to give this morning is how the heresies of Puritanism and Jansenism mean that many people feel a mistaken guilt when they experience pleasure. So as I put it there, many what we call religious people, good people, they either end up then ignoring God when they go into the bedroom so that they don't integrate their spiritual life. You know, I'm good on Sunday, I'm good when I pray, I'm good when I do this, but I just don't see how God relates to sex so that when I go into the bedroom, I'm just not thinking about him. Or in the bedroom, they are conflicted and confused and that, you know, you will hear this coming to you as priests sometimes in marriage counselling, then often the other spouse is the one who suffers from that because 
their their spouse is just awkward there because they can't think this through with God. Then point three, I say, nonetheless, pleasure, including sexual pleasure, is from God and is part of natural function. So a pleasure integrated into our life with God needs to be understood and embraced accurately. So before we look over the page, do we all understand the problem I'm posing here and the importance of it? As if we've touched on briefly, I don't know in Uganda or Rwanda how much Jansenism is an influence there to know if that's a problem there. Maybe not as much. But even so, the, the, the problem with concupiscence means that pleasure being disordered can distract us. So knowing what we're properly looking at and how pleasure fits into that helps us, in a sense, get it right. So, page two. Let's, in a sense, go back to the beginning with Aristotle, even before the Lord Jesus. So Aristotle and pleasure. So... I'm guessing you don't remember the detail of the Nicomachean ethics, but I think you've all done it in your philosophy. But he treats of pleasure when he talks about ethics, when he talks about happiness. And he argued against the Stoics, so the Stoics disdained pleasure. Now, he didn't take their line. He argued that pleasures differ according to what they accompany. So not all pleasures are the same. And they're evaluated differently according to what they accompany. He argued also that pleasures complete activity with different pleasures for different activities. But the problem, as he put it, is that pleasures cannot be properly sought separated from the activity it completes. If you end up seeking... Um, not the end or good. I, so, no, so what you need to do is seek the end or the good of the activity, not seek pleasure as an end in itself. And this is, of course, what we often do do. We seek pleasure as an end in itself. And then we've lost the thing that it's supposed to be a part of. So when St. Thomas comes along, he's building on Aristotle. So looking at him a, a little more slowly. So, um, and you know, if you want to follow it up, there's a question in the Summa that is explicitly focused on this, as well as I'm touching on it elsewhere. So he notes, first of all, very simply, that there are good pleasures and bad pleasures. That good actions bring good pleasures. Evil actions bring evil pleasures. And if we ask, what is pleasure... Well, he says, pleasure accompanies a successful completed operation, and pleasure is a sign of an action being successfully completed. That the appetite within you, you know, appetite in a technical sense, the concupiscible appetite, the irascible appetite, you know, these appetites within us, it is seeking goods to satisfy and when it gets a good, it rests in pleasure. Pleasure is what gives rest to the soul. And directly quoting St. Thomas, the divine mind, the author of nature, joins pleasures to natural operations. So, some examples. What do we mean here? So, some different pleasures. So, first, intellectual pleasures. So that I put the scholar's delight in understanding a new truth. Now that's very different from the delight of that bake whatever thing that was there at the breakfast bar. Yeah? Eating that gave a certain physical pleasure. I want you to, to, in a sense, to be making the comparison that intellectual, spiritual delights are also in this category of pleasures, but they're a very different kind of pleasure. They go with a very different type of action. Second delight, maybe less common here in flat Ohio, um, the delight in beholding a beautiful scenic view. Yes, 
You've got to be on top of a mountain or a hill to see a view. Not necessarily. Many Over. forms of beauty nature. Many forms of beauty, okay. <laughs> okay, and then I'll see something I haven't seen. You're right, okay. One maybe you can relate to, the student's delight in completing an assignment. Yes, there is a, a delight that is a real pleasure. It's not a physical, it's, but it is a, a different activity with a different pleasure. Then different again, the teenager's delight in a girl agreeing to a first date. So that would be an emotional delight, not just a kind of intellectual. You know, different things, different pleasures. That's the, that's the point. And then physical pleasures. So the example of a pleasure that accompanies a good meal. And there's also the displeasure that comes from overeating. So in St. Thomas's analysis, actually, that also is a sign to us that something's gone wrong, actually. So that is a kind of almost a gross measure of you having overeaten. The fact that the pleasure that should come with eating isn't there. Different actions, different pleasures. Humans need to seek pleasure. None can live without some sensible and bodily delight, says St. Thomas. He says, the temperate man does not shun all pleasures, but only those that are immoderate pleasures. And he says, all things seek pleasure in the same way that they seek good since pleasure is the repose of the appetite in good. So, before we move on, do you all understand what we're articulating here? As a structure of being, this is how Aristotle and St. Thomas are describing all of reality. That just all, you know, there's all kinds of activities you do when you complete an operation there's a pleasure that goes with it. That this is what, how God has made things. It's just, and within you, your appetites, your movements, are seeking that completion, knowing that the pleasure just comes with that. And the phrase, so it's in Aristotle, it's in St. Thomas, that the soul rests in pleasure. I think that's a, a powerful image. You know, your body needs to rest if it's going to function. It's not lazy to want to sleep. Well, it can be, but generally speaking, in proper measure, sleep is just a normal thing. <clears throat> And in the same way, your soul, how does your soul rest? Well, the experience of pleasure gives rest to the soul. That striving that is always in the soul, the experience of pleasure gives rest. So you don't just need to rest the body in sleep. You need to rest the soul in recreation, so you know as future priests it's important to have a day of rest. It's important to know what things to do that will recreate you to make you able to function and serve the people later in the day. The striving of your body needs the rest of sleep. The striving of your soul needs the rest of pleasure. And this is why, you know, the heresy of, of Jansenism and Puritanism, where pleasure is treated as a wicked thing in itself, is just so terrible. Because it's taken this natural part of human functioning and just said, no, no. Um, and the only way to function that way is somehow to weirdly divorce God from those bits of your life. So I don't think it's by chance that, you know, the Irish Jansenist culture gets these extremes of drunkenness and sexual license where you're 
when you're enjoying yourself, you're turning off the gold switch because that's the only way you can enjoy yourself rather than enjoy yourself in moderation. So that the northern cultures that have, of Europe, sorry, a European focus here, the cultures of northern Europe that don't, that have this Puritanism and Jansenism in them are much more prone to drunkenness than the southern Latin cultures where they will tend to drink alcohol more frequently but in moderation when they do. So what I'm saying I think lies behind that is in the midst of Puritanism, the only way you can relax is by pretending God doesn't exist when you're relaxing. And that obviously isn't an integrated life. Whereas if you know God wants you to relax in order that you can serve him at the other times, that is, he wants you to sleep so that you're awake when you need to be awake, and he wants you to have this rest of the soul in pleasure. It's how, he, how he's made you. So when then does pleasure become a problem? Well, this is what I say kind of as the conclusion at the bottom of that page. When does sexual pleasure become problematic? I say, like all pleasures, it's not an end in itself. It's part of a package. The pleasure becomes problematic when it is sought as an end in itself. So quoting the Catechism, Sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So to know the sexual pleasure is coming, to want the sexual pleasure that is coming, but knowing it's a part of this action that has an inner meaning, that's fine. It's when you're somehow trying to grab the pleasure but ignore everything else that's a part of. That's when you've separated the pleasure from the action, or tried to. So one of the images for that um, Janet Smith dwells on is, um, you know, the ancient Romans had a vomitorium, yeah? So that they would stuff themselves at a feast, and then they'd have this big bowl that they would vomit into so that they could then stuff themselves again. And then, um, so that they're trying to separate the nutrition aspects of food from the pleasure of it. Um, and a lot of the modern world's pursuit of sex is just like that. Rather than seeing that actually the pleasure is fine, but it's part of something, and the eating's fine, but it's part of something to try and seek just the pleasure and vomit up the other consequences. Okay, page three. So now I'm focusing this um, a bit more on sex, but I'm going to, on this page I make two analogies with eating. So if you remember in St. Thomas Aquinas, he groups, when he's analysing human activity, he groups sex and food together because they're both pleasures of touch. But they're not a pleasure of thinking, not a pleasure of smelling, they're a pleasure that comes with touch, with contact. So in his analysis, food and sex go together. Um, I would just add, when, you, when we talk about an analogy, we're talking about things we can compare, but they aren't the same. So in the comparison, we can see something about the other, but that doesn't mean they're exactly the same. Yeah, that's what analogy means. So, top of page three. First, eating. What are we aiming for in eating? So my typical example, I want that cookie. Yeah? What do I know? I know it will taste nice. I know it will give me pleasure. And I know what it is that it's food. But I don't reach for the pleasure per se. I want the cookie. Um, 
I reach for the thing, the good, that brings pleasure and I know will bring pleasure and I do want the pleasure. But it's the thing I'm reaching for, not the pleasure separated from the thing. What are we aiming for in sexual intercourse? Well, you want sex. You know it will feel good, give you pleasure, and you know what it is, the marital act. But you're not reaching, if you're doing this properly, for pleasure isolated from anything else. Rather, you're reaching for the unified thing, the good of the marriage act. Knowing it brings pleasure, knowing that's part of what it is, wanting the pleasure, but you're reaching, I want sex. Um, like, I want the cookie. Whereas conversely, if I seek pleasure isolated from the act, then, the quote from the Catechism I just gave, is sought for itself, isolated from its purposes. And that's when it becomes a problem, sought as an end in itself, rather than as a part of something else. Have you been through this analysis before? My feeling when I read St. Thomas usually is that he's saying things that I kind of knew already, this all makes sense, um, but he's just breaking it down. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do with this, not in a sense say something that is utterly new, but just spell it out. Okay, the example on the bottom part of the page, sharing pleasure, and this obviously is of the structure of sex, but first, a meal. So compare sharing the pleasure of a meal. Going to have a steak and a beer with a friend. So at the moment, obviously, you have limited opportunity, shall we say, for such a thing, but going to have a steak and a beer with a friend followed by an intense chocolate pudding you know, it all tastes good, yeah? You can experience the pleasure in self-orientation, physically engrossed in the pleasure, and oblivious of your friend. Yeah, I'll confess I've done this at times. I've had a meal that is just so amazingly good. I'm almost forgetting the friend I'm eating with. Um, and then it doesn't bond me to my friend. Whereas a meal should be a thing that is a shared pleasure, that actually the eating together bonds us together, the sharing the pleasure together bonds us together. Sorry, reading my notes to explain that. You can experience the pleasure as part of something broader, with your friend, thinking of your friend, a thing you do together. Such an experience bonds you together. Now, so it's not physically inherent in the act, the way sex would be, but it does give us an analogy. And I note that in every culture of humanity, all through time, we have this consistent phenomenon, people eat together, it's a social activity, a bonding activity. So, although it's not as direct a bonding as sexual pleasure. I think there is something in the bonding of sharing food together that does actually seem to be of the structure of human existence. But not as direct as sex. So, bottom of the page there, I say sexual pleasure can be selfish, using the other for self-pleasure with little awareness or concern of the other. I want my marriage debt paid. I've reminded her of that tonight. I'm not really thinking of her. Or it can be something mutual, engaging with the other as a person, not just engaging with her as a means to your selfish end of pleasure, aware and concerned for the other. And that the sexual act per se is ordered to a sharing that binds the couple together.
So that basically is my analysis of pleasure in this context. So I've said pleasure is just a natural thing that accompanies the completion of activity. Pleasure is a thing you need, your soul needs to rest in pleasure. But that pleasure is always part of something else. And so we need to seek it as part of something else, not try and isolate it from like the vomitorium. Questions, comments, observations? pleasure or would you be suggesting it's a sensible pleasure somehow and we won't give examples <laughs> but the Dixie chicks because um, there is an intellectual enjoyment of a certain class of music isn't there that actually the skill of the music and the combination of noise, I'm enjoying that intellectually, as well as sensing that somehow the, the sounds themselves are kind of almost physically having an effect on me. So thinking elsewhere, Thomas talks about how anything that can be an object of a physical pleasure can be an object of a spiritual delight as well, so that I can enjoy it in both ways. So that I don't think a pleasure has to be only physical or only intellectual. So, you know, when I'm having one of the cookies here, I am enjoying the amazingness of how it's been achieved. Just that the gooiness on the inside, the crispiness on the edge. Actually, I get an intellectual enjoyment out of that, not just physical. Um, and I suspect most physical pleasures have uh, a spiritual, intellectual aspect to Okay, let's now, I'm not going to read through the next page, but I've just briefly pulled some quotes. So, you know, your reading was partly from Peshke. Um, so he, as I think I've said, is a man I would categorize as the last of the manualists. Um, so this edition was published in 1997. His first edition of this was 1978. So he's writing after the council, but really of that whole tradition f before the council. And oddly, even though he's what I'd call a liberal manualist, and that he's repeatedly trying to kind of get around the law and the obligation in many cases, in his analysis of pleasure, he doesn't really embrace it. He talks about it being justified. Now, that's not a, a warm embrace of a thing. Um, so in the manuals, you didn't really get St. Thomas or Aristotle's treatment of pleasure. Pleasure was a thing that God has put there, God has established reality, he phrases it, to allure us to him via pleasure. But it's almost as if I shouldn't enjoy it while I'm enjoying the pleasure. Um, so, just to say, note, in the tradition, as in the recent tradition of the last 400 years, the manuals, I would basically summarize, didn't treat pleasure well and didn't treat it as St. Thomas did in the golden age of the medieval period. Okay, so you've all read uh, the reading about the ends of marriage. Um, so what I want to do the second half of this lecture is basically to just talk through that. Um, you'd have picked up in the literature that there are divergent ways of ranking these ends. That it's not just that there's one way of ranking them, but depending what question you're asking, the answer is going to be different. You know, does, do children rank above the union of the couple? 
or above the merit sacramental bond? Well, it depends which question you're asking, what answer you're going to give, and how you rank those. Um, so let's go through my notes here, and then we can discuss the text themselves. So, top of page five, I put ends, goods, purposes, reasons, all of these terms, words, we find in the literature. I say tradition and theology confusingly and sometimes seemingly interchangeably, depending who you're reading, speak of those four things. And they speak of them with respect in particular to procreation and education of the offspring, the good of the spouse's mutual help and the marital bond, and a remedy for concupiscence. So obviously the remedy for concupiscence is the least glorious of the ends and purposes of marriage. Um, Augustine puts it in there, but I think if we're instance, honest about human nature, that is one of the ends it achieves. None of the writers ever rank that as the primary end. Let's just observe that. So say, traditionally these have been ranked in a hierarchy, but not always the same hierarchy. Say, in the 20th century, focus shifted to emphasize the value of the union of the couple. See, I'm sure you've done it elsewhere in theology, all kinds of different forms of personalism, where the focus on the value, the dignity of the person, with that in marriage of the union of the persons. So Humana Vitae, I note, spoke of the procreative and unitive meetings, meanings as inseparable. It just didn't comment on the question of which ranks over the other. It just said they were inseparable. It bypassed that statement. Whereas I say in the late 20th century, three factors shifted in a sense of the theological conversation. One, I'd say a return to orthodoxy and clear thinking. Um, second, I would say less fear of precision. So, you know, with the revival of a certain type of Thomism, you just get a lot more writers who are happy to parse things out in terminology and precision. And I think that has affected this debate. But as someone who lived through it, I think one of the things that significantly shifted the debate is point three here, same-sex marriage suddenly refocused the whole debate uh, and drew attention to how radically the ordering of children makes heterosexual marriage different from other human actions, human unions. You know, so, so it's when we've kind of had put before us so in our face homosexual unions that we've had to ask, well, well, what is it about that that is different from the loving union of a husband and wife? And actually, it's the inherent ordering to children at a physical level that just cannot be in a same-sex union. So I think that has shifted the debate as well. So... Most of my focus here is on the two ends, I say, first of procreation and education of offspring and the good of the spouse's mutual help, the marital bond. Um, hopefully you'd have picked up in the literature you read, whenever we talk about the good or the end of offspring, it's always offspring and the rearing of offspring. And this is why, among other things, you need the permanence of the union. You know, when, when lizards produce more lizards, they just lay an egg and they leave it. And that's of their nature. They don't need to nurture and raise it. Um, we're not like that. We need to be raised in a stable environment. When we're not raised in a stable environment, it hurts us in different ways. Um, and so this is what marriage has been set up to achieve. And then the other end, the good of the spouses, mutual help, the marital bond. Again, that gets phrased differently in different writers, but it's always focused around what the couple do for each other, give for each other. Um, the phrase mutual help 
is in a lot of the classical literature. It has the risk of sounding quite minimal, but I think in the context of what they're writing, they actually mean a lot by mutual help. The way a husband and wife in their whole life mutually help each other, or should do. Okay, so the point I'm wanting to make in the next series of bullet points is what I say there, these two ends mutually interpenetrate each other. Um, now, I guess you've all heard of Perry Carhart, your academic dean. So his book, The Mystery of Marriage, uh, I've footnoted a lot in the next couple of pages. Um, he has a very clear, good analysis of this whole thing. Um, it's also interesting to hear a married man arguing that offspring are the primary uh, good, but also how he talks about the interrelationship here. So these two ends, they're not somehow isolated, separated. They actually relate to each other in all kinds of ways. So going through my points here. The bond of the couple serves the good of the offspring or potential offspring. The offspring need the security of a stable home. Offspring need the example of parents who love each other. So the mutual help actually interpenetrates the good of the offspring. But then in reverse, having a child together bonds a couple. On one level, seeking to have a child together bonds the couple by their yearning for a common goal. Gaudium et Spes says, children contribute to the well-being of the parents themselves. That children, and this is a bit, a bit more purifying in its language, children increase selfless love and thus purify love. That a husband and wife, when they have a child and are forced to care for the child, that forces them to not be thinking of themselves, to be thinking of the child. And that can purify the love they then bring to each other as well. And say so a husband and wife know each other through their child. The husband and wife reveal themselves to each other in new ways as a result of having a child. And the husband and wife tend for each other in new ways as they tend to the needs of the offspring. So as reading his book, I was struck by, you know, as priests, you will have to counsel couples that are struggling to have a child. And as I was reading this, it, it struck me with new clarity just how part of what they are feeling the sadness of is the lack of this thing that would bond them together and that they're kind of aware they see it in others bonds them together. So the Hollywood culture only ever looks at children as a problem, children as a source of stress, children as a thing that is going to lead you to divorce. We were happily married until we had a child. There's a whole other, more common experience of that, which is actually having a child together bonds them um, on all kinds of levels. Bonds them in a challenging way. Um, it, purifying love is never an easy path but it does bond them. So that these two goods, the, the children need the unity of the couple, but the unity of the couple also gains from the ordering to having a child. So these two ends interpenetrate, is the phrase there, mutually interpenetrate. And at the bottom of the page, quoting John Paul II, so he says, um, and you know, in his theology, the body, general audiences, this was kind of the end point of the whole long series of his theology of the body. Um, but he says, the unit of meaning is, in a certain sense, by means of the procreative. The procreative meaning bonds the couple together. I, without the procreative meaning, the couple are not truly bonded together by the marital act. So that if you pluck the unit of the, the procreative meaning out, 
the couple lacks something. Okay, so on that page, I was talking about how the two ends relate to each other. Well, what about a hierarchy of them? Um, so here we are on page six. So John Paul II, quoting him, um, the traditional teaching in the ends of marriage and on their hierarchy is confirmed and at the same time deepened from the point of view of the interior life of the spouses of conjugal and familial spirituality. And then quoting our academic dean, to designate a hierarchy of ends in marriage is not to establish a hierarchy of value pertaining to those ends. It's not to say that the good of spouses is somehow of less value than the procreation and education of children. It's also not saying that the good of the spouses as a secondary end only has value as a means to attain the primary end of procreation. And so he makes the distinction, the unit of meaning of marriage is subordinate to the procreative, quoting JP2, but the unitive is not a mere means to the procreative end, but is rather an end in itself. Thus an infertile couple can be truly married. Do you, do you see that point? So if, if the procreative if the unitive only really had meaning as a means to the procreative, then it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get married if you couldn't have children. And so that, in a sense, simple fact in the church's doctrine and law indicates that it is truly an end in itself. So why have a hierarchy? Well, a hierarchy indicates what makes marriage different from other relations? To say that the procreation and education of children is the primary end of marriage is to point out what is most distinctive about this type of relationship, what makes it unique among all types of human relationships. It identifies philosophically the final cause of marriage. That is the cause or purpose that specifies marriage as a distinct reality. The fidelity of the spouses serves, serves the raising of offspring, but we can't really say that the raising of offspring serves the fidelity of spouses in the same directness. So that, therefore, a hierarchy. But note, summarising, marriage is ordered to both ends. Neither end can be accurately seen in competition with each other and neither end can be chosen in opposition to each other. Thus, humanity talking about inseparable. Still awake? Very quiet this morning? Okay, summarizing all this on the top of page seven. So we can thus summarize, the primary end of marriage is the procreation and education of offspring. The secondary end of marriage is the mutual support of the spouses. This is a true end of marriage, finis operis, not just a means to the procreative end, but it is an end subordinate to the primary end of procreation. Subordinate in terms of defining the distinctiveness of marriage, not subordinate in terms of value. And a further end of marriage is remedy for concupiscence, which wasn't in the original purpose of sex and marriage because it only is a consequence of the fall. And then I, paraphrasing one of my old professors in Washington, D.C., he used to summarize the debate this way, that the framing of the question changes the nature of the hierarchy. That in terms of what serves the common good, the raising of offspring is the primary. But obviously, in terms of what a young man and a young woman are seeking themselves, well, they're seeking each other. In a type of union that is in itself ordered to something beyond them. 
Okay, if we turn the page, I'm going to just briefly put that together in terms of the sexual act itself. Um, So I've been talking about marriage, primarily as our focus in that hierarchy of ends. But I was saying we're looking at this so that when we're looking at human activity and the sexual act as a part of human activity, and chastity is that virtue that integrates and fulfills it, what then the act itself, what is its end or end? So, previous pages of this lecture have analysed the ends of marriage, but what are the marriage acts per se? Sexual intercourse, aka the marriage act or the conjugal act, as an act, we talk about it defining marriage. That without it, a marriage isn't consummated. And in summary, its structure manifests the same ends as marriage. So what's it about? What's it seeking? What should we be striving for in it? The same thing as marriage. And interestingly, because the manuals were bigger on kind of physical structure of human actions, um, I'm predominantly here quoting Peshke's analysis. So, the physical and personal structure of the sexual act, well, what does it reveal if we look at it that way? Well, the purpose of this act is the procreation of children in which the Second Vatican Council sees the innate end and ultimate crown of conjugal love. You know, when we look at the animals, when we look at ourselves at a physical level, what's the act primarily about? Children. Physically, it's an act that is primarily ordered towards procreation. I'm not going to read that block quote, but physically it's an act expressing intimacy, union, and mutual love. But actually we see that also in the physical structure. And that on one hand it expresses this independence of procreation, whereas on the other hand the physical structure implies these two ends are inseparable. You know, even if we look at the act at a physical level, we see that these things go together, these things interpenetrate. And interesting, Peshke, even before uh, JP2's Theology of the Body made such talk fashionable, he w was quoting, referring to body language, the body language of the sexual acts implying unity, affirmation, safety, warmth. And you can extend that to not just the bodies physically, but if we think of the person personalistically, that personally I viewed holistically in terms of emotions, affections, and the physical, the marital act is apt to express mutual appreciation and love. The expression of marital love and friendship is sufficient reason for the conjugal act. Um, therefore, the church has always permitted marriage between people who, for reasons of age or health, are unable to have children. Two ends always exist in correlation. And then the last thing, actually, that I've not said anything about in the analysis, fostering love. Now, we'll come back to this later in the course. So, you know, we use in popular language the term making love, that the action in itself does something between the couple that increases their love for each other. Well, back to the analogy of sharing a meal together, bonding you, that there's something in the marital act, the shared pleasure of the marital act, that actually bonds them, fosters mutual self-love. So quoting Peshke there, the sexual encounter creates a relation of mutual longing and expect expect expectancy, by its very nature, sexual love gives birth to a demand of recurrence and faithfulness. Husband and wife always long for each other again. 
This longing nature urges and compels partners to stay together in a lasting bond. So he's trying to describe that. Then quoting Vatican II, these actions signify and promote that mutual self-giving by which spouses enrich each other. And obviously sex doesn't do that automatically. So, you know, in all kinds of ways, there can be sex without love and therefore no bonding, no fostering of anything. But when engaged in the right intention, this is what it is designed to achieve. What the sexual act per se is ordered to. Okay, so I'm not going to go through page 9 with you. Um, basically, all I've done on page 9, as we've talked through, is quoted different sources in the tradition. And part of the reason I've done that is to know in the tradition we find this different language. So the Council of Trent talks about reasons for marriage as well as talking about ends for marriage. Depending what it's talking about, it ranks them. So even in the same document, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, you get these three ends ranked differently depending on, in a sense, which question it's approaching it with. Which I think reinforces Perry Kyle's point that it's not that one is more valuable than the other. The ordering is different depending which question you're asking. All right, let's look at the reading material together, shall we?